This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, would we be better off without Christianity? We're asking this question today to Simon Smart. Now, Simon is Executive Director of the Centre for Public Christianity. He has a Master's in Christian Studies, is a prolific writer, and contributed to the book, For God's Sake, An Atheist, a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim, Debate Religion. And he joins me now. Please welcome Simon Smart. Well, Simon, here. welcome to Bigger Questions. Thanks, thanks so much. Now, so your book, For God's Sake, An Atheist, a Jew, and a Christian, and a Muslim, Walk into a bar. Yeah, is that, no, was that the idea of the, the book? It uh, sounds like that. <laughs> it sounds a bit yeah, like that. No, it was just an attempt by us to have a serious disagreement about our our worldviews, if you like, yeah. and still be friends at the end of it. Right, and, and you still were friends? Yeah, yeah, we've, we've managed to pull that off. I oh, think, very so. good. So, but it was a worthwhile experience. It sounds like an intriguing conversation. Four different perspectives. Well, I, I thought so. Uh, yeah. It was fun. Uh, yeah, so we had um, two atheists... Right. A Muslim and me. Okay. Because the Jewish person is secular Jew, atheist. And uh, we were looking at big worldview questions from our different religious or non-religious perspectives and trying to really disagree. We didn't want to pretend we sort of felt the same things about most most of the topics. Right, yeah. But in fact, to disagree, to try to tease out some of the implications of our beliefs. Yeah. And then see where it took us. And to do that in a, in a civil manner. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's what we try to do here on Bigger Questions. Right. Is well, I, explore big questions that. in a civil way. So I'd appreciate you being civil today. I'll try. Yeah. I'll try <laughs> okay. my best. Very good. Well, to kick off Bigger Questions, we'd like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're asking Simon Smart if we'd be better off without Christianity. So, Simon, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about things that we'd be better off with. Okay, now do you feel qualified? Not really. <laughs> okay, right. I'm, I'm worried now. Okay, well there's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one. A teenager wrote an article on medium.com entitled An Invention That the World Would Be Better Off Without. What did this teenager think the world would be better off without? Okay, was it A, pineapple on pizza? Was it B, social networking sites? Was it C, slow internet? Or is it D, Religion. <laughs> so which of those did this teenager think the world would be better off without? I'd have an affinity with someone who thought pineapple and pizza was a bad idea. Right. You, you're, you're, that's, that's how so you think. That's, that's how I that's, feel. That's your so worldview, is it? Yeah. It is. And <laughs> so I, so I'm, I'm hoping that's the answer. But I'm wondering if slow internet might have been. Well, it wasn't. Oh. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. It was actually B, social networking sites. Uh, they said that without social networking sites, the stress of popular posts would be eliminated. Members of our society would value their current state of being and life events without trying to document it for all to see. Well, they found one teenager who thought that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I agree with that teenager. Yeah, so that, they're, maybe, they're, they're, they're a rare person. They're a rare, rare person, yeah, okay. Well, question two. We'll see how we go. We'll try to get you to pass. Question two. A 2011 Intelligence Squared debate addressed the motion, the world would be better off without religion. Now, what percentage of people who voted online agreed and said that we would be better off without religion? Was it A, 8%, hardly anyone thinks we'd be better off without religion? Was it B, 57%, a bit more than half? Was it C, 72%, nearly three quarters? Or was it D, 97%, everyone knows 
that we'd be better off without it. I'm going to say 72, was it 72? That's C. 70, yeah, you, were gonna, C. you want to go with C? 72%. Yeah, lock in C? Lock it in. Yes. Well, that's a good one to lock in because it's the right answer. Yeah, yeah, yes. one right. So 72% was the vote of the 18,000 or so people who voted online. Anyway, well, Simon, we're better off for having you answer our smaller questions because you passed. Well, you got good. one of our smaller uh, questions right. So big round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> now, Simon, a similar result was found in a poll conducted on the Q&A TV program back in 2012, which asked the question, does religious faith make the world a better place? 76% of the 20,000 respondents there said no. So Simon, does it surprise you that such a high number of people think that the world would be better off without religion? Yes and no. There is a fairly, I'd say a growing group in our culture that have this sense that religion has been the cause of all sorts of terrible things yep. and you know we've moved past it we've grown up we've, yep. you know we're not having to have these childish answers to life's questions anymore yeah and we'd be better off without it so i think it's complex the reasons that people feel like that today mm. but if you combine for instance the fact that two-thirds of people today say that they don't have a meaningful relationship with someone who's a christian yep. for instance so if you combine that with some very prominent, awful things that people are fully painfully aware of, like the child abuse yep. tragedy and scandal, and like the way in which churches have sometimes dealt with those things. Yes. In, in a sense, it's not surprising. If, you, if you're kind of really disconnected and that's all you hear about, yeah. then who would think? Uh, we'd be better off with yeah. religion. Uh, the problem is I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Yes. And so that's why I like having these sorts of... Well, that's right. That's what we're here today, to explore this question. Now, you addressed a number of these sort of awful things in a recent Centre for Public Christianity documentary, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. Now, what were you hoping to achieve by addressing these issues? Were you just, just trying to say that you know, the bad things done in the name of Christianity weren't really that bad or they weren't really Christians? No, and anyone who sees this will realise that we weren't doing that. Right. At Centre for Public Christianity, we do things in the media a lot. And um, whenever we, we recognised a few years ago that whenever we did that, people would write into us and say, yeah, okay, great. But what about the Crusades and the oppression of women and the hoarding of wealth and the sex abuse scandals and so on. So there's this long list of complaints that people had against the church and church and Christian history. And we just had to recognise that this is a long list and it's a valid list. It's a, there are very serious failures of people who claim to follow Christ, yep. living in ways that are deep, doing deep harm to other people. It's part of the history. And so you have to just acknowledge that, I think. So that we wanted to, to look at the question, has Christianity as it, this profound shaping force that it's been, which is undeniable. Yeah. Has that been good or bad for us? <laughs> but so why did you include the bad things? I mean, it's just that's just what's, that's history, I suppose, that the church has done some bad things. To have any integrity in doing a documentary that, was, that claimed to be historical, it had to absolutely include the, the awful stories. And we knew plenty of them, and we even discovered more <laughs> right, as we okay. did the research. Yeah. And we just thought, no, we have to do this. And in a sense, we hope in doing that, we, we might, for some people at least, 
get a bit of permission to go. And there's also another story right. that's part of this overall picture. Yeah. And, and we've tried to do both those things yeah, as yeah. the subtitle of the documentary. As the tells better and worse. Yeah. So, I mean, as you research, you've just mentioned that, as you researched, you've you investigated, uh, you were confronted by this negative impact of the Christian faith in the world. Was that an uncomfortable experience for you? Yes. And it should be for believers. Although, in a sense, I'm a student of history, so I wasn't freshly surprised. Hmm. I also think that people who understand Christian faith well recognise their own failures too. So they're not, in a sense, they're not surprised because they say this is the faith that we're fallen, broken people who need redemption. Hmm. And so in, in a broader sense, I guess I brought that sensibility to the, to the question. Right. And yet, rightly... As I, you know, read more and more of these awful stories of crusaders travelling down the Rhineland and just for practice going and just slaughtering villages of Jewish people. I mean, you can't read that without thinking, what on earth is this about? It's yeah. so far from what I think is authentic, authentic Christianity. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, so how did you deal with that then or how did you respond? Well, what we didn't do... Uh, it would say, oh, well, they, they weren't Christians. Yeah. We didn't think we could get away with that little sidestep. The whole sense of how you get to the point where you follow the, the crucified Messiah who refused, utterly refused to use any force against anyone, how do you get from that to, oh, we take up the sword? Mm. Is, it's a long, complicated story. And, and there's even things like the way in which the warrior culture of Europe adopts Christianity but then also influences Christianity mm, mm, mm. and so and you get the difference between the church in the early in the first few hundred years where it's just a kind of persecuted minority as it moves into holding the keys to power. Mm. A question just come in from our text line from our live audience here today it says you seem to be saying there's a disconnect between Jesus and his followers how do you explain that? There is often a disconnect. I mean, Jesus sets out some very high standards. My colleague often says, it's Jesus that makes Christians look really bad. Because <laughs> he sets these incredibly high standards well, for high people ideals to follow, high ideals, these aspirational things sometimes. And so there, there's a disconnect. But it also, to, to understand Christianity properly, you will know that all the followers of this recognize their own inability to, to achieve this. Mm. But, but to be genuine faith, I do think there has to be an orientation towards something that looks a little bit more like Jesus' mm. life. Mm. So as you've done this the documentary, you've done some research into the history of the church, was there any particular story which you discovered which perhaps captures the essence of the film or perhaps the essence of the history of the church? Yes, um, I did a lot on the German church yeah, under yeah. Nazism. Yeah, what was, that, what was that like? It does capture certainly the worst elements, but also a few pockets of the great greatness yeah. of true sort of self-sacrificial uh, service in aid of, of following Christ in the way that people mm. thought they should. Yeah. So it's a, but it's a very dark chapter yeah. of Christians. Okay, so maybe we'll think about, so the German church, so think about it, how it's, it's better and worse, and how was it worse? How well, was... the German church failed pretty much completely in its ability to handle the challenge of Nazism. And so the, even the theologians, very influential theologians, were caught up in this sort of drive towards nationalism, drive towards 
Germany uh, restoring German pride. Right. Doesn't yeah. matter how you do it, but we'll do it this way. Mm. And so you see this kind of capitulation to to the Nazi program yeah. and accommodation. So even the theology gets twisted so that it accommodates that, that program, mm. which is so antithetical to everything Christian in my view. So you, you get that. Yeah. It's a catastrophic failure because I would argue that had the churches been united in their opposition to Nazism, they probably couldn't have pulled it off in the way that they did. Right. And they didn't. Right. But is there a better side? There is. It's, I don't want to overstate it because it's some brief, it's sort of pockets and it's, it tends to be not the institution but individuals. So there are some great people who, um, because of their Christian faith and because of their f- fidelity to what they thought was true Christianity, they really did stand up in opposition. And we tell the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a famous pastor and theologian, yeah. who was young but very prominent, sort of an aristocratic guy. But he, right from the beginning, in 1933, he was speaking against the Nazis. He, he saw the danger, yeah. he saw the problem. And, and it was he, contrary to his Christian convictions. He thought it was idolatry. Right. For, for a Christian believer, that's sort of, that's a terrible thing. Yeah. And it's setting up other gods that are separate from the real God. And uh, he, he was totally opposed to it. And he, in a way, clear-sighted in a way that Almost no one else was, even ones who eventually became opponents. Mm. Uh, he, Martin Niemöller is a good example who eventually went to Dachau for his opposition to Nazism. Yeah. But at the beginning, he was you know, cheering along too. Right, yeah. Whereas Bonhoeffer Bonhoeff- somehow saw right from the beginning, <laughs> this is a terrible thing and we need mm. to oppose it. And so he eventually, tragically, is because um, he was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler, uh, controversially, um, he was part of a big wide group of people who were involved in that that failed obviously yeah and then he was uh, imprisoned and then right at the very end of the war uh weeks before flossenberg concentration camp was liberated he was hanged mm. and so we tell that story of someone who who really did stand up for truth stand up for what was right at an enormous cost Mm-mm. Now, so you obviously, that's one of the, the, the German church is a story of better and worse in some respects. Were there any other stories perhaps of people or characters that really uplifted you? Yeah, I, did, I, I love telling Martin Luther King's story. Yeah, what's, this, he, what's his story? In this documentary. So Martin Luther King is the Baptist pastor who led the fight for civil rights for African-Americans from well, 1955 until he was assassinated in 1968. And everyone knows something about him, the famous I Have a Dream speech yep. and that type of thing. So we tell a bit of that story, but we're, we're particularly focusing in, in on the way his faith was central to uh, his uh, program of um, non-violent resistance. Right, yeah. And how, how so? How was his faith central to this? Well, it was, it, it was the beginning, mm-hmm. the middle and the end mm-hmm. of that. So yeah. he, was, he, was, he was influenced by Gandhi in, in terms of the p- a political tactic, in terms of non-violence. But his, his whole program centred on his belief that God is, God's character is one of self-emptying love, yeah. even for enemies, and that to, to operate in this environment effectively and to be in harmony with the nature, of the sort of very nature of the universe was to act this way. To, to follow that, And yeah. he, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant political tactic, as it turned out, but it also was incredibly inspiring to me mm. the way these people 
Like he led a movement where they put themselves, deliberately put themselves in danger and, and in places where they knew they would get the most racist, violent reactions. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's not passive. It's, yeah. They call it passive resistance. It's not passive. It's, <laughs> right, it's that's very brave, deliberate... Uh, subversive in some ways. Very yeah. subversive, and and these guys were you know putting bodies on the streets yeah. to be beaten up in order to show on whose side. <laughs> this is a different type of. This is a different way. Yes. So yeah. what else was motivating Luther though? Sorry, Martin Luther King. Well, I think I think he saw, as the African American church saw, and and you know, we we also in a in other parts of the documentary talk about slavery and the Bible and so on. But he he was using the Bible as a with the the great Exodus stories of the Bible, which were very influential, yeah, to talk about God's interest in this oppressed people, yeah, and that He would be their deliverer. He had this great faith in that. That you know, he talked about the arc of the universe bending towards justice. I think he had great faith in that. So he 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 believed that what he was doing was right, and that ultimately it would be it would be effective. And there was this great. We went to his house. There's a great moment in that story early on in the story where. He, in his house in Montgomery, where the bus boycott was, it was a year-long bus boycott uh, that he was involved with. And very early on, he gets this, um, these death threats. And he get a phone call, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill your family if you don't stop this. And he prayed a prayer. He tell, we had a scholar, African-American scholar, telling us this story. It was a brilliant story. Uh, he prays a prayer and he says, I'm losing my courage. I don't know what to do. People, if, if, if everyone sees me losing my courage, the whole thing is going to fall apart. And he, he felt he heard a voice from God speak to him saying, keep doing what's right, stand up for justice, stand up for what's right, and I'll never leave you alone. Mm. And so he was sort of bolstered by this moment, this sort of epiphany that he had. A couple of nights later, his house was bombed. So they firebombed the house, front of the house gets blown off. He wasn't there, but his wife and daughter were in the back and they thankfully weren't hurt. But he comes back. That night, a crowd of his supporters arrive and they, they stand on the front lawn and they're armed with, with you know, shovels and sticks and guns, I think some of them had. And they wanted to go and get, find out who did this and we're going to get them back and we're going to beat them up or whatever they, they were planning to do. And he, King comes out onto the balcony. This is early in the struggle and he says, listen, we're not going to do it this way. Mm. I thought it was amazing. He says, we want to mm. follow in the way of Jesus and, and I want you to go home now and remember to love your white brothers no matter what. Mm. I mean, mm. I think that is so counterintuitive, so radical. So for him to go home and tell them to go home and love their white brothers, yeah. as he's speaking as a Christian there yeah. and calling people to something that he was almost calling them to something to, to live into, this, yeah, this yeah. vision of, of so relating. But it was also a sense of equality as well, though, was it? He, he massively, in- massively about equality. I think the whole movement stems from, this is a very powerful thing because it, white southern Christians used the Bible mm. to justify this awful mistreatment of people, whereas... King was saying, no, no, I want, you should be more Christian, not less Christian. You know, <laughs> right, yeah. Calling on white racist pastors. You've got to be Christian. Read your Bible. And what, if, what you would find in the Bible there is a, is a profound belief that every single person is made in God's image. And because of that, they are immensely and immeasurably valuable. Mm. Everyone. Yep. 
We're asking Simon Smart today's big question of whether we'd be better off without Christianity. And the New Testament book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So is this significant? Uh, Verses like that, Galatians 3 verse, which uh, the theologian Ben Witherington, he calls it the Magna Carta of human freedom. I mean, this is building on that idea that I talked about before, which is in the first page of your Bible, that every every man and woman is made in God's image. And then, then you get this kind of blasting out of that into the rest of the world, and with the idea that God himself becomes a person, you get this incredible affirmation of each person. And because of that story, uh, Paul writes in that book, no longer male or female, slave or free. It's, it's all one person. So there's no sort of the social, gender, political, whatever. You are there's one a qual- There's a quality there. I mean, that is, that's a radical thing to say today, let alone in the first century. So, yeah, he was building on those ideas and calling people to live up to them. Yeah. But can't we get notions of equality outside the Bible, though? For example, the French Revolution, didn't it proclaim liberty, equality, fraternity as the basis of non-religious um, enlightenment thinking? Yeah, and it turned very violent very quickly, didn't it, the French Revolution? And it's a, that, again, is a complicated story, but it, it does beg the question. I mean, it's a good question and a fair question. Could, can't we just you know, forget all this religious stuff? And, and say we're equal. Assume that we're all equal and just get on with it. Well, maybe, maybe. I think time will tell because we do seem to be throwing God out of, out of the picture and then hoping to sort of continue to live as if that were true, that everyone's equally valuable. What I think is undeniable, though, is that it's an incredibly robust foundation on which to make such a claim and it may be not true that there's much foundation without it. So if you don't think that there's an eternal perspective on everything that we do, if you don't think that there's something outside of ourselves that's demanding of us that we think we're, we're equal for that reason, then I do think it leaves you, it leaves this idea at least very vulnerable. Mm. Because it's obvious that people aren't equal in, at, from a kind of totally human perspective. Some people are stronger, smarter... Uh, more have more capacity. Yeah, it's, it isn't true that everyone's just completely <laughs> equal on the face of it. And so this is a very robust idea that we are meant to treat everyone this way because it's there's a worth that they're given. It's bestowed to them. It's not based on any sort of capacity. Hmm. So now you've confronted the very worst of 2,000 years of the church, um, but surely the world would be better off without things like the Crusades, the German church supporting Nazi Germany, clerical abuse of children, etc. So wouldn't that be fair? We'd certainly be better off without those things. But what I've realised is all of the sorts of base human behaviour is just human behaviour. And sometimes religion gets used for that. Sometimes religion's part of that. But what's constant is that the the human capacity for brutality, selfishness, cruelty is is vast. And I don't think you you need religion for that. Mm. What you do, though, get from, I'll speak for Christianity, you do get for Christianity an incredible vision of something much different from that that's calling people towards self-sacrifice, calling them towards honesty and integrity and kindness and generosity and compassion. Compassion for people who uh, maybe 
outside of what you would normally expect to be the people you would care for. Mm. And so I do think, I don't think we would be better off without that. In fact, I would say the world would be a much harsher place without the Christian gospel as part of the fabric of the culture. Mm -hmm. So you've confronted the very worst of the church. What persuades you then to stay a Christian, even though you've confronted these things? Well, I've, I've recognised that some of these terrible things are a result of fallen human nature. If anything, it's made me more uh, realise the need for the redemptive story of, that Christianity offers, mm -hmm. both the world around me and me for too. For yourself. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. so in, in what way? If anything, I've, uh, it's helped me to recognise my own failings, my own shortcomings and the need, and need for something outside of myself to, to redeem what's yeah. broken. And, and I think... And I also how think has the Christian message helped you with that? It's helped me enormously with that. Um, Christianity, I mean, the human experience, even in the best lives, is, is one of, ultimately, one of brokenheartedness and sadness and disappointment. And Christianity offers a vision of the world that is hopeful be, uh, instead of those things. Like right. I, so I, I think the sort of hope that Christianity offers is, a, is deeply lacking in our culture. Right. And I think there are signs of that too. I think our, our growing anxiety, our growing sort of atomization of community, um, depression and so on, is possibly a function of right, this, yeah. this lack of... Lack of hope. A hope. And I don't mean hope in a kind of endlessly cheerful way. Mm. I just mean... you not giving way to despair. You have a mm. reason to not despair. Mm. So how does the Christian message offer hope? Well, it offers a, a vision of who you are, a precious child of God. It recognises a vision of you're precious but you need help, mm -hmm. that there is help available, that God himself, the maker of the universe, is present and wanting to be part of that redemptive story for each of us. Mm. And, and ultimately a kind of vision of a future beyond this life. I mean, death remains the great challenge, the great enemy of all of us. And it offers hope for that. And I still, might sound old fashioned, but I still find that incredibly uplifting. Mm. But it's a, it's a future hope that infuses the present with meaning, yeah. in my view. And I, f I really have experienced that. So even the mundane of life with this vision of the world, can f you can find meaning in that, I think. Mm. So Simon, would we be better off without Christianity? We wouldn't. The Christian vision of the world, of our place in it, of everyone else's place in it and the future is, the, I think, the greatest story ever told. I happen to believe it's true. And I think it offers us, let's say, the, the hope that we desperately need and that many of us are lacking. Mm. So, no, I think despite the many failures, and, and let's, there have been plenty of them, uh, it remains, and the, the person at the core of it, of course, Jesus, remains the best hope any of us have. Let me leave you with the Bible's, or well, one of the Bible's answers to the big question, would we be better off without Christianity? From Galatians 3.28. Um, there is neither Jew nor Greeks, nor neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Simon Smart.
Hey there, I'm Aaron Johnstone. And I'm Amy Isham. Thanks for listening to Bigger Questions. Did you know that we've started a new companion show called Deeper Questions? We'll have a bunch of Christian guests that we think are worth hearing. But we'll also speak to people who are sceptical, people who are unsure, people who are investigating, and people who have lost their faith. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to Deeper Questions today and look out for new episodes dropping weekly.